0: Case, but this one is out of Cook County, Illinois. In Namus, you can find her under 33139. Her name is Case is created March 29th, of 2016. But uh, that's several years after she goes missing. Uh, she's an African American female, five feet to five feet two inches tall, 160 to 165 pounds. When she goes missing in 2009, she would have been 56 years old. And if she were alive today, she would be 69 years old. There's not a lot about her, but she has started to make some appearances on some of the different television shows and stuff. We're going to talk about her from the perspective of Charlie Project and Namath. But The Examiner, The Chicago Tribune, The New York Daily News... My Fox Boston and America's Most Wanted have uh, picked up her case. I will say that on the Charlie Project, she's classified as endangered, missing out of Glenwood, Illinois, and they do state that she is a recovering drug addict, but that she had been clean for many years prior to her disappearance. And she has light brown hair, brown eyes, a, uh, a prominent gap between her two front teeth, and that both ears are pierced in the lobes, and one ear, which I can't tell from the pictures, is pierced in like the upper cartilage. I had never heard of her before, but I'm going to highlight her today. There's something interesting with the vehicle in her case, too. I'll bring that up in a minute. So Viola is last seen leaving the Glenwood, Illinois residence of her adult daughter, Angela. This is on the morning of December 26, 2009 although the date of last contact varies for her between the 25th and the 26th. It's all roughly within the same 24 hour period. Latrina, another daughter of Viola's is the intended destination. She tells Angela that she's going to see her. Latrina had just been released from the hospital and apparently lived about 15 minutes away from Angela. Viola never arrives. Her family ends up reporting her missing December 29, 2009, after their own search efforts don't, don't find, like, they don't find her, basically. December 30th, the police find her tan 1999 Chrysler Cirrus abandoned, parked illegally on a street in Dixmoor, Illinois, that is pretty far from where she was supposed to have been headed. There's no sign of Viola at the scene. Now, Viola had been working locally at a medical facility in 2009. She never picks up her last paycheck. And since her disappearance, there have been several reported sightings of her around the Chicago area, but none of them have been confirmed. So Charlie Project, that's from NamUs. Charlie Project mentions that kind of the same idea and that, Angela Martin, in December of 2009, she was competing for the third time to be a finalist on American Idol. So this disappearance gets kind of national media attention. There were several different tragedies that are brought up in this case. Uh, Angela Martin's father was murdered by his girlfriend in 2007. One of Viola's daughters is disabled, and one of their cousins died shortly before Viola's disappearance. Now, Angela has stated that she believes Viola may have relapsed and begun using drugs and alcohol again. But officially, her case remains unsolved. It's with the Glenwood Police Department. And I noticed uh, there's, they have an active detective. The, there's multiple pictures of her available online. And if you go, if you just go Googling her, you will find, like, there's some TikTokers that have covered her. She pops up in a couple of different news articles here and there, uh, particularly around the anniversary of her disappearance. Uh, NBC Chicago uh, runs a little segment on her. I don't have a lot of extra information on her case. I did notice that Cook County Sheriff's has her up on their missing persons page. Uh, It's pretty similar to the NamUs page. Anything that you had on Viola's case?
1: It's hard to kind of gauge what happened there. There's several sort of weird circumstances lining up as far as, um, you know, she was going to the daughters that wasn't far away. The car ends up abandoned and illegally parked, which is always strange to me. Yeah. Um, I always wonder like, how does that happen? Right. And um, I did look a little bit and, uh, I didn't find anything like additional, like where I always look for um, sort of it's usually forum format where, you know, somebody has spoken out. And I couldn't really find that here. So, yeah, I I think that that um, it's a very sad situation. Her daughters, I'm sure they miss her a lot and it would be a christmas miracle for her to return.
0: Yeah, I so I pulled up an NBC uh, uh Chicago or or uh News 5 Chicago um mm-hmm. article by Rob Stafford and uh Lisa Capitanini on December 22nd, 2021, they published this. It says family of missing mom hopes for a christmas miracle. Uh, it's a it's it's kind of taken the place of some of that forum talk that you're just, is describing there. For the Martin family, Christmas has always been a, a joyful, festive celebration. At Christmas, my family is crazy fun. Wow, crazy fun. We're called Angela Martin, uh, the daughter of Viola Martin. We joke a lot, we sing a lot. My mom was the one who started to sing. She, she always started the singing. She would put church music on. Back in 2009, Christmas fell on a Friday and a surprise snowstorm added to the holiday spirit. At the time, Angela Martin was an American Idol contestant, but was at home celebrating her favorite day of the year at her mother's home in South Suburban, Glintwood. Viola Martin has three daughters, Latrina, Annette, and Angela. That Christmas, Viola's oldest child, Latrina, was at home in Crete recovering from surgery as daughters Annette and Angela celebrated at their mother's Christmas party. They ended up leaving early because a snowstorm was dumping lots of snow and they didn't want to get stuck. Latrina said she remembered her mom called later that night to say she'd drop off a plate from the family's holiday feast. I love you, and I'll see you soon, Viola told her daughter. Crete was about a 15-minute drive away, but Viola never made it. Five days later, police found Viola's car, the 1999 tan Chrysler Cirrus, parked at a forest preserve in Dixmoor, a town in the opposite direction of Latrina's home. The keys were gone, and her cell phone was on the seat. There were no signs of foul playing, There was no signs of foul play, but her family said they haven't seen her since. I don't want to celebrate Christmas, Angela said. I cut my phone off. I don't want to talk. So those celebrations are a thing of the past, at least for me. Viola's case is one of 170 unsolved missing persons cases, 77 women, and 93 men, reopened by Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart. The missing persons project is staffed by three full-time detectives working to solve long-term missing persons cases in Chicago and the suburbs. Underlying it all was this notion that victims' family members of missing people need closure, said Tom Dart. Over the years, I've found even if the news is bad, they prefer that to the big question mark. Dart said he's hopeful that some of these missing people are alive. This is not some naive notion on my part, but when we were going through the John Wayne Gacy cases again, what people overlook is we found five live people who had been missing for 35 years. Police commander Dion Trotter at the Cook County Sheriff's Department leads the team of detectives searching for Viola. The sheriff asked me to go out and try to bring some resolve to these cases and help these families, Trotter said. Even if we have to deliver bad news to them, the fact that someone's taken the time to revisit the case of their loved ones makes all the difference. Trotter's team is looking closely at the area where Viola's car was found. There was a lot of blight there and a lot of drugs. And that's when it clicked for me, Angela added. She'd relapsed because she had episodes when she was not sober with her drug addiction in the past. The daughter said their mother had been sober for seven years after treatment for cocaine. They said Viola held a steady job at a medical records facility and had never picked up her paycheck the week she disappeared. If Viola had gone back to drugs, her family asked why she didn't pick up her paycheck in order to buy more drugs. That's where the confusion is, Angela said. And guess what? We don't know. Even more puzzling, years later, they said a relative told them he was sure he saw their mother walking on a Chicago street, but by the time he turned his truck around, she was gone. Angela said that she believes that a few years ago, her mother was alive. She made pleas on American Idol and Ellen DeGeneres. The families held vigils and handed out flyers. Latrina said that Dart's missing persons project is everything. They give us a whole lot of hope. It will be 12 years in December. This year, the family of Viola is hoping for a Christmas miracle. Anyone with information should contact the Cook County Sheriff's Department at 773-674-9490 or email at ccso.missingpersons at um, I thought that was an interesting article to sort of include here.
1: It is interesting. And uh, so one thing that is most interesting to me this is exactly what i was looking for that i didn't find um i was looking in the wrong place though because this wasn't a forum it was on NBC chicago and i i presume it's because of angela's yes idol american idol hopeful status that like that's why it's on the news right and okay so they comment that they left because the snow was falling so hard right and then the mom left the house to drive fifteen minutes away to take food to the daughter that couldn't make it to the party, um, but she ends up in a di- in the opposite direction, and they don't find her car for five days. Um, what is? Do you know what blight is?
0: Uh, blight. The word is it's uh, boarded up windows, trash. It's the idea of blight is that it would show you an area is kind of run down a little bit. You want to, you want like a literal definition? No,
1: that's fine. Um, I, I just wasn't sure. Um, but so it was at a forest preserve.
0: Yeah. The area that they're describing here, it's, it's, it's actually sort of a, a weird little place. So Dixmore is a town. Okay. Um, it's, it's technically, I I say, you know what? I think I'm wrong. I think it's a village. I don't know. If you, if you look it up, um, it's in Cook County, Illinois. So it would be considered the suburb. All right. If you go through South side in Chicago and you head, I guess, straight South, there was an area there called Specialville. So Specialville is now known as Dixmoor. Cause Charles special had named it after him sometime in, sometime before the great depression. And then afterwards they started calling it, um, uh, Dixmore. Uh, if, if, and I don't know my demographics on that area, like right off the cuff, but I'm pretty sure it's a predominantly black area. It's just not super well taken care of at the point in time we're talking about it. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it makes sense. Um, I guess I was just, uh, more curious than anything. Like, all right. So let's say that um, I feel like she would have dropped the plate off first.
0: I want to know where the plate went. If she was relapsing, I think she would have. Yeah, I think she would have well, gotten because, that far.
1: Because the the daughter says, like, "Oh, it clicked that um, she had relapsed," and that's a strong statement, right? Um, it,
0: it is. Yeah,
1: and. It also, like, a mom that has three daughters that, like, none of them showed up at Christmas, that's a relapse situation, right? Uh, one where there's two there, and then there's another one to take a plate to. That's less of a relapse situation. Um, I was curious to know, like, how much the snow factored into the situation.
0: Um, I, I think it would actually factor in more than we realize.
1: Well, they left because it was snowing so much, right? They didn't want to get stuck. Um, The two daughters that were at their mom's house, they left because of the snow situation. And so to me, that's telling. And I'm wondering if, like, did they check her car? Like, her cell phone was there on the seat. No keys. No keys. So her keys are somewhere. Um, It sounds like to me, maybe her cell phone was dead and she took the keys with her and there was an issue with the vehicle or there was too much snow because they found it five days later. It might not have been readily apparent what the conditions that night for her coming to park there were. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, Like if there was a whole lot of snow that had subsequently melted or whatever was happening there. Um, but to me that weather is uh, a factor i wasn't aware of and i hadn't looked it up or anything and i was under the impression like they had found her car like on our just our street right <laughs> I, I don't know why but um this changes things a little bit and uh you know it's possible and i see it probably differently than what reality might be, but it's possible that she might've had a friend that she wasn't relapsing. She was trying to go take them a plate of food too. Right. Um, if that was a congregate area.
0: Yeah. Well, okay. So, all right, the area that she went to, and I don't know this for sure, based on all the descriptions I've read, I think that she was headed over to what's known as Dixmore Playfield. Um, it's an area. It's uh, it's more like Central Park. Does that make sense? Like so, it's a it's a forest. Like you drive into it, it has trails that go off of the parking area, and Kickapoo Meadows could be another place. But I think they would have said Kickapoo if she was at Kickapoo.
1: So, um, what would she have been doing there?
0: Exactly what you described to some degree. So, in my opinion, she either would have been visiting someone who lived right up on the edge of the playfield, or and there's houses that go pretty close. Or she would have been meeting someone there, like, at one of the shelters. And, like, there. Uh, when I say shelter, I mean, like, a picnic shelter. Because other people may have had their, you know, Christmas celebration there that lived close to, uh, to Dixmore Playfield.
1: Right. And so, you know, you've got to get her going in that direction for some reason. But if I feel like if it was going to be something besides something really quick, she would have taken her daughter, the food first. I feel like, um, she was planning on visiting with her daughter longer because she went here first.
0: Yeah. And so this is not super far in time either. Like it, like just from the perspective of like a normal driving day, think of like even even Chicago at christmas time so going south to her daughter in Crete would have been 15 to 20 minutes this is 15 to 20 minutes the other direction like almost exactly north of glenwood is how you get uh to dixmoor but Crete is almost directly south of glenwood kind of to the west a little bit but
1: right and i i don't know it seems like maybe um i i feel like there could be more information here um I don't know this far out that there's going to be more information but at the time uh you're right where's the plate of food was there a plate of food in there if not like you know what happened to it um because that's a whole strange situation uh but it does add some to it and I don't know. Now I'm I'm really confused about like where her vehicle ended up Uh, as far as like, well, was it a situation where she could have wandered off in the woods because it was so snowy that she didn't know where she was going. It doesn't sound like that's the case. It sounds like she would have been pretty close to somebody that could help her. Right. Um, But if you, uh, if you consider all the circumstances, um, I feel like relapse would be one of the very last things I would come to, honestly. But, well, I, you know, I, I don't want to contradict her daughters because they would, you know, they can make their own presumption about that. But it just seems like a very, uh, it doesn't fit, right?
0: Yeah. I, well, it doesn't fit to me that she never picks up the paycheck. Honestly, like not picking up the paycheck, you got to be pretty deep to be relapsing and to not be to feel like you got so much money on you that you don't need to go pick up your paycheck. That's weird. Um, That's not like a, you know, that's not something I would expect from someone who had relapsed. Um, I I don't know. I thought this was, uh, okay, so first of all, I thought this was important for a number of reasons. One, this is a very interesting case in how it gets publicity. With Angela having been in the spotlight a couple of different times and able to further spotlight Viola's case, I thought that was a big deal. Two, it's a Christmas time case, and I always like worry about those. Three, we haven't talked about that many Chicago cases. So Chicago itself is it's almost its own country up there um, in terms of like crime and politics and everything that goes on there. Then additionally, I feel like this Missing Persons project is sort of important to highlight that they have revived that in a way that they're you know, looking at all of these old cases and I just like personally um, I I really hope that this case gets some kind of closure because it almost feels like somebody should know something. Um, I don't think this is going to be a case of someone walking off to harm themselves. And this is a rare case in terms of its media coverage of a, a, an African American woman in her fifties, and I think that's a big deal to sort of highlight it and say, you know, we should be doing this with more missing persons cases.
1: Sure, and um, actually, it does seem uh, that demographic is peculiar, right? As far as it being is. a missing person, it is a peculiar because um, she's not uh, so old that, like, you you know she's an older person wandering off. Right. Um, right. and because she's clean for seven, for seven years, right. Uh, she went to rehab seven years before she disappeared. Um, I think that, uh, I wonder like, well, if that hadn't have happened at all, then what would the answer be?
0: Yeah. And you know, there's so this case is full of all the contradictions. Usually you get a case That's got a couple contradictions that make it a difficult case. And that's how the case ends up cold. But here you sort of have all of them. She is a recovered by all accounts user. She is a family person who is clearly having time with her daughters for Christmas. And then she has a job that she, according to what they're saying, she has a job that she works, which would entail having responsibilities. There's a number of things happening here. You see like one or two of them in walkaway cases. You don't see all of them. But what you really don't usually find is the car parked by a, the car abandoned by a park on a holiday with an African-American female who had three daughters who expected to interact with her over the holidays. And some of them did. And some of them didn't. It's, it's an odd, it's an odd set of circumstances.
1: It is. It's very odd. Um, and it is, uh, you know, it's a mystery. And unfortunately it's a mystery that's gone on for you know, quite a while now.
0: Yeah, I would, you know, I would be totally curious what it looked like in terms of canvassing the area where her car was. So her car is found five days later. I understand they're saying it's abandoned off the forest preserve and the phone is there, the keys aren't. I am dying to know how many interviews they conducted because that's exactly the type of thing that catches people's attention. And the the neighborhoods that are around here, for lack of a better word, Christmas is very important to those neighborhoods. And they do have a lot of family around at that time. I think there would have been people home over the course of these two days. And, uh, you know, certainly people home during the snowstorm and they would have seen this, but that's the part that makes it a little weird. It's a snowstorm going on. People are leaving because there's a snowstorm going on and she's headed the opposite direction of where she's supposed to be going.
1: Yeah. it it's,
0: I don't think she's going for a hike, is my point. You know, I don't think she gets lost in a forest preserve on a hike, which is like, you know, we've talked about some of those cases.
1: No, yeah, you're not going to be doing that at night in a snowstorm on Christmas when you've told your daughter you're bringing her a plate of food.
0: Yeah, you're bringing her a plate of food.
1: Which is, again, I feel like this was, like, if she left the house, In the vehicle to go to her daughter's house and she was the one driving. This is weird. This was a quick stop before she took her daughter her plate, which the food's gonna get cold. Like, I mean, I can see this, how this is happening. She who whatever was going on here, she wanted to do it quick because she wanted to get to her daughter's, right? This wasn't a situation where um she wasn't going to uh in. Like, she didn't tell her daughter she was coming and then with no intention of going, right? Yeah. I don't think. Um, The other thing is, like, what if, it? you know, what if she didn't drive her van there?
0: That's a good question.
1: That would mean, like, something happened at the house or at um, her – I'm not sure if she lived in a house or an apartment, but at home. If something happened to her at home and, you know, somebody else entirely ended up – and I would say that, like, you know, if there was no plate of food – I'm starting to wonder about
0: that, right? Yeah, you got to wonder, like, how the cell phone, is it a misdirect of some kind? I don't I don't know. And I, I, I can't really speculate well on this because this is sort of an endless possibilities case once you leave the house. And, and you, like, just track it to where her car is. Something happens that gets her there. Um, whether – I have no idea – how that goes down in a way that she has just vanished off the face of the earth. And that was the, that was the final reason I felt like it was important to uh, highlight her cases because it honestly is a head scratcher.
1: It is. And uh, hopefully somebody will have some information at some point and or they will think of something and you're right. I feel like the people who lived there at the time or who would have passed through that area at the time, they possibly could have seen something that they would have noticed, and they may not even realize they have the information, right?
0: Yeah, that's why I was saying I wonder if, like, a canvas was done I think it's going to
1: be really hard now, though.
0: Oh, it's it's, – you might find the right detective with the right way about them to make a plan where they could find a few of the people that potentially could have seen it. The problem is you are already dealing with a needle in a haystack situation. And the only thing that's happened between now and then is some of the haystack has has drifted away and become you know scattered. So, right. Uh, I have an exoneration today out of New Jersey. You want to you want to move over to that? Sure. Okay. So this exoneration case is uh, it's from a crime in two thousand three. Uh, it's a murder, and then there is a, a weapons possession charge and a robbery attached to it. It's out of Hudson County, New Jersey. Uh, the conviction happens in 2006 and the demographic information for uh, the case at the time, this is a black male who would have been 33 at the, at the time of the, the crime being reported. His sentence was 30 years and he ends up exonerated in 2023. Now contributing factors to this one were a false confession False or misleading forensic evidence and official misconduct. But there's no DNA contributing to this. Uh, this is a, a fairly new one. And, it you know, the newer the cases are, the more detail we kind of get from this. So this is kind of a long one. At around 8 p.m. on January 5th, 2003, Romeo Cavero called his family and said that while he was outside his apartment building in Jersey City, New Jersey, he had been attacked and robbed. Romeo was 74 years old. His family arrived very quickly to assist him, and they found Romeo bleeding from the head. There were bloody footprints in the snow, there was blood on the sidewalk, and there was a bloody handprint in the building's vestibule. The family called the police, and they spoke with a man who was just inside the building who said that he had found Cavero after the attack, and he had tried to help them. That man was a 33-year-old man named Dion Miller. Dion Miller and Romeo Cavero knew each other well. Dion did odd jobs for Romeo and lived with his grandmother in an apartment on the same floor as Romeo. In addition, Dion's aunt, known as LP, had a prior relationship with Romeo. Eric Santiago, Romeo's grandson, would later tell police that Dion approached him as the family waited for an ambulance and said that it wasn't him. According to Santiago, he said that Dion smelled of alcohol and was rambling. Romeo told Officer Carmine Disbrow of the Jersey City Police Department that he had been hit on the head and robbed by a black male driving a black vehicle. He said that he did not know his attacker. Carmine said that Romeo appeared coherent, although he was a little shaken and he was dazed. Later at the hospital, Romeo told another officer that he might be able to help identify his attacker if the officer would show him some photographs. The officer asked Romeo to call the police after he was released from the hospital, but that never happened. Romeo went into a coma and he died on January 9th of 2003. That night, between 11 p.m. and midnight, Detectives Martin D'Angelo and Sean Means, along with two uniformed officers, went to the apartment building where Romeo had lived. Dion's grandmother lived on the first floor. The seniors' housing complex had a secure entrance, so the officers had to wait until a resident opened the front door before they could go in to Dion's grandmother's apartment. The officers said they asked Dion to come to the police station, Dion would later testify that he told his grandmother he'd be back and he felt comfortable leaving with the officers. He rode without handcuffs in the back of the cruiser. Around 12.30 a.m. on January the 10th, Dion's interview begins. At around 1.45, according to the police, Dion Miller said that he might know something about the attack. These statements were not written down or recorded, and Detective Means would later testify that at this point, Officers asked Dion to sign a statement acknowledging that he had been read his Miranda rights. After a pre-statement interview that was unrecorded and lasted about an hour, Dion Miller gave a tape statement that said he acted as a lookout for a man named Rock and another man, and that these men had robbed Romeo, hit him on the head with his cane, and left in a black truck. Miller said he stayed behind to help Romeo get inside the apartment building. Police charged Dion with conspiracy to commit murder, robbery, and aggravated assault. At the time of Dion's interrogation, it was common practice in New Jersey for law enforcement to only record a suspect's final statement. Beginning in 2006, police in the state were required to record the entire interrogation of suspects in murder cases. Do you know why that is? Well, yeah. I don't think people... Understand the amount of coaching that goes into what happens in court and what leads up to an arrest. Like, there's a lot of finessing of statements.
1: Right. And I mean, I guess at some point in time, it could have been like a resource issue. But once we had digital recordings, there was really no reason not to record everything. I realize it makes for more work later, but it also covers everybody's uh, credibility, right?
0: It does. It it adds it it adds a layer of transparency that can complicate cases. So, okay, the name the name of the man that they call Rock here, that is the nickname of a man that Dion Miller knows. And in the court documents, he's identified as R.B. Dion's aunt is identified as L.P. So R.B. is L.P.'s boyfriend. And R.B. has a teenage grandson, C.B., in the court documents. So after Dion's statement is recorded, police bring in his aunt, her boyfriend, and the boyfriend's grandson, and they question them on the morning of January 10th. After they question them, they let them go. Sergeant William Haney of the Hudson County Prosecutor's Office Told Dion Miller that the three potential suspects had contradicted his account. So basically, the statements that LPRB and CB give don't match what Dion said. So then Dion tells him he wants to make a new statement, and he signs a second Miranda waiver. After another unrecorded pre-statement interview, Dion gives. A new recorded statement at 2:41 p.m., and this new statement, he says that Romeo said something that triggered Miller. So Dion says that he got triggered by Romeo. He took Romeo's cane and he struck him three to six times on the head. He said he didn't take any money. So at this point, Dion is just charged with murder. The police begin the paperwork to move Dion to the Hudson County jail. That took a few hours. And before they managed to complete his booking and his transfer, Dion gives a third statement. This is why you don't talk to the police. He
1: he certainly don't sign a third Miranda waiver.
0: Yeah. He signs a third Miranda warning waiver and he gives a third statement. In this statement, he says that he hit Romeo in the head, he took his money and then he left him and he went to the liquor store. On the way, he panicked, but he dropped the money and he goes back to the apartment to check on Romeo. Dion's trial for the murder of Romeo Cavero takes place in 2005 in Hudson County Superior Court. Prior to trial, Dion's attorney had moved to suppress all of his statements to the police. He argued that Dion did not intelligently waive his rights and that Dion was effectively in custody from the time the police entered his grandmother's apartment. He wants to argue here that there should have been a Miranda warning before Dion leaves the apartment and goes to the police station. I don't know how many Miranda warnings they want, or how many waves they want in this case. Essentially, you have a custodial issue. Like, is is he in handcuffs? Is he not in handcuffs? And there's a lot of semantics that go on in a situation like this. I don't know how you go to argue against three signed Miranda waivers, but then I have to ask myself, why did the police have him sign three Miranda waivers?
1: Well, right. And I would have to say, I would personally, um, I would argue that having signed three of them, the person was incompetent to have signed the first one. It is a telltale sign, not to mention the argument being presented here with them showing up to take him and to talk to him. Uh, if there was n- nothing wrong like, if he was legitimately a suspect and police legitimately felt like he was the perpetrator, they would have immediately read him his Miranda rights.
0: Well, more importantly, they would have arrested him. It well, wouldn't have been, none of this come with us, please.
1: Well, they didn't have enough to arrest him.
0: Right, and that's what they get to. So this hearing takes place about the suppression of these statements. And Sean Mean says that he and Martin D'Angelo arrived at the building and they took with them two uniformed officers. That's a little weird for a knock and talk to have four guys. Don't you think?
1: I uh, I mean, I, I don't know.
0: Why would you take the two uniformed officers if you're not making an arrest? They're hoping he's just going to spontaneously confess. That's what they're hoping.
1: I, I think that they might have been concerned. It seems like you take uniformed officers because you want to make sure that they know you, you're a cop, I guess.
0: Uh, that would make sense, too. You're right. Yeah.
1: And then, like, if if you're going to have an issue, right, the uniformed office. Because police officers in uniform are more recognized than detectives in suits, right?
0: Yes. Okay. And not That's all cool. detectives wear suits either. Right. All right. So we've got this uh, suppression hearing going on. And D'Angelo says that police did not have enough evidence to consider Dion a suspect. But he didn't explain why the police didn't ring the doorbell or simply make a call into the apartment. Dion testified at the hearing. He said that around 11.45 p.m. on January the 9th, he and his grandmother saw someone shining a flashlight through their living room window. So this is a, a, an apartment window that's being shined. Grandma calls 911. The dispatcher tells grandma that the police are already, there's units at this building. So then there's a knock on the front door of the apartment in the, like in this secure area. Dion says that after he and the detectives arrived at the police station, They go into an interrogation room, and he and Martin D'Angelo are chatting about sports. Sean Means makes coffee, and Dion said he asked Martin D'Angelo why he was there and whether it had to do with Romeo being in the hospital. According to Dion, Martin said, yeah, that's correct. He's dead, you son of a bitch, and we're with homicide. So Dion said he told the detectives about his whereabouts on January the 5th, how he had arrived at his grandmother's place and he saw blood outside the building. He said that he had actually been worried she was hurt, so he went in and he checked on her. But when he followed the trail of blood, it led to Romeo's apartment. So he knocked on the door, Romeo let him in and said that he'd already called his family, he'd already called his family and that there was already an ambulance on the way. So then Dion said that about 1.30 a.m. on January the 10th, he asked to call his grandfather or a lawyer, but the detectives wouldn't allow it because they had more questions they needed to ask him. So in terms of time, this is before any statement has been made on the record. They said that Dion knew too much about the crime. He told them he had read about the attack in the local newspaper. And a few minutes later, they, rem- they handed him the rights waiver and they told him to sign it. Dion said that they didn't read the waiver to him and they did not explain what he was signing. Dr. Jonathan Mack, a neuropsychologist, he agrees with you. He testifies at the hearing that Dion had been incompetent to waive his Miranda rights during the interrogation. He said Dion had a long history of alcohol abuse and that Dion had told Mack that on January the 9th, he had consumed more than 20 beers And three shots of brandy. In, Mac gets asked to listen to the recorded statements. He said he detected halting speech, slow speech, and fairly abbreviated answers to questions and a little bit of slurring. To this, it suggested that Dion was tired and had been drinking. Factoring in the stressful situation of an interrogation, Dr. Max said that Dion was unable to make an intelligent waiver of his rights. After the hearing, Judge Shirley Tolentino allows the admission of Dion's statements, but ruled that Dion's point of custody began at the apartment, not the police station. That's a weird hair to split.
1: Well, not really.
0: It it becomes, right.
1: Well, there's actually, like, a point here, because before he signed the very first waiver, he asked to either call his grandfather or an attorney, and that's him asking for an attorney, and just because it's almost like this is a really skewed view of, like, because they're, like, constantly putting this piece of paper in front of him to sign, Um, they're actually undermining the credibility of him acknowledging and waiving his Miranda rights, in my opinion, Right. (laughs) Um, because it's not a matter of getting someone to sign a random piece of paper and you've signed your rights away. It's police should actually really want somebody to understand the fact that like everything you say right now is going to be used against you in court, right? And, you know, you have the right to not incriminate yourself. And the fact that it's, um, that he was in custody beginning at his apartment, it should substantially change uh, the way that the rest of everything is viewed.
0: That's a, that's a really good perspective on this, I think. And I think it's probably why in my head I'm always like, do not talk to the cops. Because I think that going along with what you just said, The police sort of think of it as their job to minimize the importance of these technicalities they have to meet along the way to get to what they want.
1: And they want to squeeze it through, right? Yeah. They're like talking to this possibly inebriated, tired man. And they're going, okay, yeah, so here's your rights, you know, you need to sign. But go ahead and tell me that story, right? Yeah. Um, And to me, that's just bad police work. Like, this guy got in the vehicle with you without handcuffs. He's down at the station. I got news for you, buddy. He didn't do it.
0: He lives with his grandma.
1: I'm just saying, like, (laughs) you, you know, you've got a situation. Not to mention the way that... It all started with her opening the door because she called 911 and the police were already at the building. They didn't tell her the police were there for her grandson. Okay. Yeah. And, but they got her to open the door, right? I mean, I'm just saying this is some shady stuff happening here. And the fact that he's cooperating at this point, I think the reason that they took two uniformed police officers with them is because they didn't know what they were going to get. Yeah, like,
0: that's a good that's a good point. Yeah. And okay. like I agree with what you're saying. Yeah.
1: And I feel like while you know, there was a couple of things that kind of factored in here. I mean, the uh the very first thing was Cavero before he you know, he was alive for a couple of days, and before he died, he said that it was a black man in a black vehicle that attacked him. Yeah. Right? Okay. He did not say it was my neighbor, Dion Miller. Correct. Which is what he would have said.
0: Yeah, I I think, yes. Okay. He, yes.
1: I'm just saying, uh, and then, like, you know, there's some weird stuff happening here that makes me question how this guy ends up on the chopping block. Nevertheless, he is on it. And I see, like, over and over again here. I'm interested to see, like, and we're, we're going to see what happens, but... Um, You know, 20 beers and three shots of brandy. I'm pretty sure that that would make anybody's signature on a Miranda waiver null and void.
0: Well, that's the other thing I keep wondering. And I haven't seen this. I did look for it. I was wondering if Dion Miller is of unusual size.
1: It's possible. Um, Yeah. I, I. You know, a lot of times...
0: Because I know... uh, Big guys can be
1: intimidating, right?
0: Well, I... um, uh, Yeah. Uh, I have had odd reactions to me from law enforcement. And I'm not a 20 beers and three shots of brandy kind of guy. Which makes me wonder, like, is he bigger than me? Because if he's, like, substantially, like, large, that would... A lot of this suddenly starts to kind of... Pop it, in, pop into focus for me.
1: It might make a little bit of sense, but at the same time, it doesn't justify their actions, in my opinion. Um, oh no,
0: no, 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 no! I don't, I don't think it justifies it. I just said, you know, I can see more clearly sure. where, they're, where they're not being able to see past it.
1: Sure. Um, and um, at, by the time they get to the third different confession, yeah, I feel like that any good investigator would know that they're on the wrong track.
0: Yeah, I think I, I would agree with that. So. Dion's attorney, he moves prior to trial, after this ruling by Judge Tolentino, that the point of custody began at the apartment. He moves to allow the prosecutor's sergeant, William Haney, to testify about other robberies in Jersey City that would have been around the time of Romeo's murder. Haney testifies at a hearing that several of those crimes, including those that led to charges against two other men, were very similar to the events of the mugging. So two different events for Romeo. So Romeo's mugging, while it leads to his death, it might not necessarily have been something. It might have been a spontaneous murder. So he, he testifies that he reported these concerns to his supervisor, who told him not to pursue any further investigation in light of these three statements that you just mentioned that Dion has made to the detectives. Judge Tolentino allowed William Haney to testify about this potentially third party guilty or this, the the fact that there could be like a Saudi defense. So judge Tolentino seems to be on the side of an, of getting some kind of equality out of this. So Dion Miller's first trial ends on June 30th, 2005 with a hung jury. Prior to his retrial, The trial gets moved over to a judge named Paul DePascal. There's a new suppression hearing and there's a new third party guilt hearing being held in front of this judge. And the judge rules that Dion's statements are admissible. Although he said Dion isn't actually in custody until the time the detectives said that he makes his first incriminating statement after 1.40 a.m. on January the 10th. Separately, the judge rules against allowing William Haney to testify about these other robberies. So the second trial begins on October the eighteenth of two thousand six, and the jury hears Dion's statements. Romeo's family testify about Romeo's relationship with Dion's aunt, and they said that they believe she was taking advantage of, of him by frequently asking him for money. For herself and for her teenage daughter, uh, Dion's cousin. The medical examiner testifies that Romeo's injuries are consistent with being struck with a cane, and there there's a cane at the scene that has Romeo's blood on it. Police had searched Dion's apartment while he was in custody on January the 10th, and they took his clothing as evidence, but they didn't find any blood stains on his clothing. Dion's attorney does not present an alibi defense. And the only defense witness was Haney, but he was barred from testifying about the other robberies. So on October 26 of 2006, the jury convicts Dion Miller of first-degree murder, armed robbery, and two additional weapons charges. He receives a sentence of 30 years in prison. Now Dion goes through the appeals process, And the argument that's made is that a statement should have been suppressed because they were the result of an improper two-step procedure where he was in custody, but he had not been advised of his Miranda rights until he made an incriminating statement. So the idea is the cops have played some games with him. They brought him in to have a talk. They walk him through a talk. They don't get the answers they want. They steer his answers towards an incriminating statement. And at the first sign of that, they then shoved the Miranda waiver or Miranda warning waiver and say, all right, if we're going to keep talking, you got to sign this. On August 10th of 2010, the appellate division of the Superior Court of New Jersey remanded the case back to Judge Pascal and asked him to make findings of fact. The appellate court noted that the two trial judges had heard different evidence at their respective suppression hearings, and they ruled differently about when Dion was actually considered to be in custody. On November 19th of 2010, the judge ruled that Dion's statements were properly obtained, writing that Dion was initially only a witness when he went with the police to be interviewed on January 9th of 2003. The appellate division affirmed this ruling on May 23rd of 2011. Dion filed a motion for post-conviction relief claiming that his attorney provided ineffective representation by failing to call four potential alibi witnesses to testify. And for those of you who have listened to Serial, this is a very similar post-conviction relief process as to, to Serial. So Dion's three sisters and his niece testify at an evidentiary hearing that they had seen Dion in the hours before the attack on Romeo, and that he had left their house sometime before 8 p.m. to return to his apartment to get his grandmother ready for bed. Both of Dion's trial attorneys testify that the women's statements about the events of that evening were not sufficiently specific, making them unhelpful in crafting Dion an alibi defense. The attorney at the first trial said that the gaps in the alibis led him to pursue the third-party guilt angle as the cornerstone of the defense, which resulted in a hung jury. The attorney at the second trial was unable to present that third-party defense the same way the first uh, trial attorney was. So the appellate appellate division affirms the denial of the post-conviction relief petition on April 14th of 2016. And they rule that Dion's attorneys made a reasoned decision not to pursue an alibi defense. In April of 2019, New Jersey created a statewide CRU or a conviction review unit. And we've talked about that in other cases. Sometimes they're known as conviction integrity units. And sometimes uh, they're just known as uh, appellate review units. This one is is based out of the New Jersey state's attorney general's office. In November of 2019, Dion files a pro se application requesting that the CRU reinvestigate his case. And during that investigation, the New Jersey Innocence Project at Rutgers University began to represent Dion. On July 24th of 2023, Dion's attorneys filed a motion for a new trial that was joined by a memorandum from the CRU, which said that Miller had suffered a manifest denial of justice. He had been wrongfully convicted for a murder he didn't commit. CRU investigators interviewed William Haney in April of 2023, and he told them about numerous problems with the interrogations. He said that prior to Dion making his second and third statements, the detectives fed Dion information, and then would have him repeat it back. At one point, William Haney said the officers called the prosecutor's office to find out how many times Romeo had been hit in order to square Dion's statement with the evidence they had. William Haney said that Dion Miller didn't know how much money had been taken from Romeo until the detectives told him. And if you'll remember back to us talking about it just now, he doesn't even mention the money in his first statement. William Haney said that Dion appeared to be drunk and exhausted as the questioning continued over 17 hours of interrogation. He said at one point, even Sean Means appeared to doze off. So Haney said that he spoke privately with Dion and he asked him if he had attacked Romeo. Dion said no, and Haney said he asked Dion, why was he confessing? According to William Haney, Dion said that he didn't want to get hurt. So William Haney said he told the Jersey City detectives about the possible holes in Dion's statements, but the officers didn't want to investigate other suspects. He called this a, quote, rush job. Separately, the CRU interviewed Dion's aunt, her aunt's boyfriend, and her aunt's boyfriend's grandson. At the time of the robbery, the boyfriend and the grandson lived together. And the grandson said that the police came to their house and they took them both in handcuffs to the police station. His mother was also at the residence, but she was not not allowed to accompany her son. At the station, the police told the grandson that his grandfather and Dion had accused him, and that he would be going to prison instead of the prom. The grandson was isolated for several hours, and then his mother showed up. The tone of the officers changed, and the grandson was allowed to leave. CB was saved from further abuse when his mother came to advocate for him, according to the CRU's brief, but no one came to help Dion. The CRU noted that Dion's statements didn't match Romeo's account. Romeo said the assailant left in a car. Dion never said that. Romeo also never said that he was struck with his cane. Most importantly, Romeo told the police that he could identify his assailant, but he never identified Dion, even from the safety of the hospital. The CRU brief also said that there is now a greater understanding of false confessions and the situations that give rise to them than existed in 2003 or 2006. Dion's confessions checked many of those boxes, which is, this goes back to what you were saying, Meg. He's intoxicated and he's likely experiencing withdrawal at the time he gets an end of the 17 hour interrogation and he was tired. He also had a limited ability to understand the waivers that he'd been given. In addition, his innocence might've worked against them. The CRU cited research suggesting that innocent people sometimes confess because they believe that the truth will finally come out anyways. After the hung jury at the first trial, the state offered Dion a deal. If he pled guilty to second-degree manslaughter, the state would recommend a sentence of four years in prison. At the time, Dion had spent more than two years in pretrial custody, which would have been credited towards his sentence, reducing his additional incarceration. Dion, nevertheless, refused to accept it, said the CRU brief. It is difficult to believe that a guilty person would have turned down this bargain. On July 27th of 2023, Judge Mitzi Gallas Menendez of Hudson County Superior Court granted Dion a new trial and then dismissed the charges against him. Dion was released from prison. Attorney General Matt Platkin said in a statement, Every day throughout our country, our criminal justice system is tested. Many times justice prevails. When it fails, it damages the system's effectiveness and credibility. It is the responsibility of each of us to acknowledge our mistakes and attempt to right the wrongs that have been done. Laura Cohen, who is one of Dion's attorneys, said we hope that the lessons learned from this matter, particularly with regard to the causes and frequency of false confessions, will lead to exonerations of other innocent people and help prevent future wrongful convictions from occurring in New Jersey. Well, Dion's going to be home for Christmas.
1: He will be. And um, the whole situation is such a shame, right? Um, He lost 20 years of his life um, because he was an upstanding uh, guy who was innocent, who thought, you know, my neighbor has been hurt, been robbed and attacked and hurt, and I'm going to go to the police station and help.
0: Yeah, that's what he thought. And um, so uh, of note, Dion is the second uh, case that the CRU has found in New Jersey that has ended this way. The first one was uh, the case of Taron Hill. Um, He had been found to have been wrongfully convicted of killing two men in Camden. He'd been sentenced to 60 years. He's been in prison for 16 years at this point, but he had been sentenced to 60 years.
1: And I feel like as we see more and more of these exonerations coming out, uh, with, like you said, the review units, uh, being part of, they're actually being just integrated right into like the attorney general's office or, you know, or however. prosecutor's
0: right. offices. Yeah.
1: And, um, as we're seeing that, uh, so a lot of times it's a new generation that is exonerating the convictions that the wrongful convictions. Right. So, um, I feel like that could, ease the burden a little bit because it's not it's not someone having to eat their own crew right
0: yeah Um, I think you're right yeah
1: and then you know here um, we have an investigator uh, Sergeant William Heaney who is involved and he was uh, staunchly against this these charges against him to begin with right against Dion to begin with and um, he maintained that this whole time, right? He did. And, it, and to me, I don't see how anybody, I don't see how these officers that were ultimately responsible for obtaining the three different statements that they got and uh, the way that it kind of went through, um, you know, initially the jury was hung until uh, the evidence substantially switched, Right. Correct. Um, And you have to wonder about that. I wonder, I don't know why the judge did what he did. Um, I feel like uh, one of the pivotal moments in all of um, all cases uh, come down to Fourth Amendment issues and and your right to remain silent and Miranda issues and in every single case. I feel like almost, I don't know that like specifically saying like, okay, you know, here are your Miranda rights. I don't think that that's going to keep somebody from talking or not, right? Yeah. Um, And I feel like that would be a blanket type of coverage for um, police officers if like, and a lot of them do, like, and you can see it a lot of times it's just sort of the, it's one of the steps in the procedure. You're like, hi, I'm a police officer. You have the right to remain silent, you know, and it it goes into this whole thing. And like, you know, as just, you know, people that are covering these cases, I would just remind everybody, you don't have to talk to the police. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with being 100% innocent and saying, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not going to talk to you.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I've been in that boat for a while. And like if you have something that you feel like it's really important to say, then like one of the best things you can do, like if you feel like you've seen something or you know something, if it's more than a couple of words, just get a lawyer a lawyer will represent you and you can get that information to the police in a way that makes sense. You can call it in anonymously to most crime stoppers and pretty much everywhere has a crime stoppers these days. They will pass it on to the police. You don't have to give your information. You know, you can, you can hide your phone number these days. You can do all sorts of things to get that information across. But honestly, there is no reason to sit down with the police in most of these scenarios.
1: There's certainly not a reason to go with the police once they've uh, come into your grandmother's apartment in the middle of the night, um, even if they do let you sit in the backseat without handcuffs on.
0: Yeah, I think I'm going to agree with that. Yeah, I, I'm just, that can, that's a ploy too, though. You know, that's a ploy.
1: It's all a ploy. And you know what? I am a. Having investigated as many things as I've investigated, I am a staunch supporter. I mean, I, I completely am against all of these little gimmicks and games. Okay. It's unnecessary. Yeah. In fact, I think it makes everything so much worse. Right. Um, especially when you're talking about these um, cases that 20 years later the man is exonerated because he didn't do it to begin with, right? Right. Yeah. So you know, investigators are uh, you know they're I assume they're pushed to do their job because I imagine a law enforcement investigator who doesn't solve any cases probably isn't going to be employed for very long. However, we are just now at this point where all of these convictions all of these cases that were closed are now having to well they're not being reopened they should be reopened but the people are being exonerated now right of course these men are probably long retired i imagine 20 years right
0: uh yeah you're you're definitely running up against being retired with a lot of these
1: Right. And so was it really worth it? Was it worth pushing investigators to make arrests on cases just to have innocent people go to jail? So now you don't only have the original victim of the crime, you've now got this innocent person that was convicted on your watch. Yeah. Right. I mean, I I feel like, uh, it's, it's severely misguided, right. And it's a big waste and it's, it, destroys an innocent person's life and it's a burden it's a further burden on society because you've let the person who did it continue to be free
0: yeah yeah i you know i mm. this uh the waste of resources I, i hate to be the one to say that but that's always like in the back of my mind the waste of resources is so crazy that like I, I know there's so many other things. There's justice, and then there's delayed justice. There's denied justice, and there's these people that go to prison. I If people could see the amount of money that's wasted in all of this, because since we've started doing this, I've started looking at more and more what all these court procedures cost.
1: Oh, that's insane.
0: It's so Bonkers, and like I, you know, I don't want to be that guy that like points out that the only ones getting rich in these cases are lawyers, and that includes all these like because some of these cases have had big settlements come out of them. Most of them do not. Most of them, the statutes are getting to the point now that they kind of get a set amount if something has happened to a person and they're wrongfully convicted, and and then they get exonerated.
1: And you know what? I'm a, I'm honestly, um, I it concerns me that I feel like the legislation has actually considered the, like, well, if we pay them this much versus if we avoid, you know, false convictions to begin with, like, I feel like they've done that cost benefit analysis and it's (laughs) bothersome because that's a bottom line number. Okay. And to, to have, you know, to be at the point where like, All the states need to have, you know, a wrongful conviction compensation package. uh, And and a
0: conviction integrity unit.
1: Written into law to the extent that, you know, it has to happen now. I mean, come on, people. It it feels like that should be a clue, right? It
0: It really should be.
1: And... I don't know why people aren't getting it. It It's so strange to me. Um, I don't know how these guys, I don't know how investigators, um, like in Dion's case, where they're sitting there, they've had him waive his Miranda rights three times. It's the middle of the night. He gives three different statements. How do they feel like that they got justice for the victim?
0: How do they sleep at night?
1: I, I don't know. And so I like, so in my mind, I'm thinking, well, they had to have thought they were doing the right thing, except now I know like it's entirely possible that they knew that they weren't doing the right thing and they didn't care because they didn't feel like investigating this. It was just another guy that, you know, it was just an old, another old dead guy. Right. I, I don't know that that's what they said. And, but you know, and oh, this guy, well, he'll end up in prison anyway. Right. I mean, that's what I imagine they're saying. And to me, it's so disgraceful. And just the nerve of these investigators, like, oh, I'm doing my job. I'm putting away the criminals. Except you're not. You're being a criminal. Like, oh, it's so annoying. But this case really kind of brought all that out. And this guy just got exonerated this year.
0: Yeah. That's all I got for this one. You got anything else on this
1: episode?
0: Nope. Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram at True XS. or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252 365. 5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at truecrimexs at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.truecrimexs.com. We'll see you next time. I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the the CrimeXS code there. Um, You can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CrimeXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've I've selected all of these guys, I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance, but plain water can be boring, and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated. It helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. Right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours, and I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder, and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners, and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on-the-go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself, you can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E, X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and excess will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all-natural, real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all-natural, whole food ingredients, and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is, I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together, and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so I saw this item, and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset, and you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this, for Laird, is going to be True Crime XS. Pretty much everywhere except for Labrador Creations, if you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, Laird will get you 15% off. At some of the other places, I'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy, athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, white peach I use as a secondary flavor, and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We're part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is, Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guest. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place, and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TrueCrimeAccess you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is True Crime XS. And it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras. And then my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several new eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same New Era ball caps. Uh, We love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention, New Era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime XS. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash True Crime You can also use the code True at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code truecrimexs.